is at Humber. 969 Radio Humber's in-depth news and public affairs program. I'm Hannah Clark. Coming up, Remembrance Day, the roles of wartime women, and how to find a career for this month. All this and more today on at Humber. Tomorrow, November 11th, is Remembrance Day, the day that we pay respect to fallen soldiers. It is also the 100-year anniversary of the poppy, which inspired the Canadian writer John McCree's poem in Flanders Fields. At Humber reporter Michaela Verbruggen speaks with Stephen Clark, National Executive Director, Legion, in Ottawa. So what is the meaning of Remembrance Day? Remembrance Day is a time where Canadians, both individually and collectively, can honor, thank, and remember those who have given their lives the service and the sacrifice in the military service of Canada. We've had over 118,000 Canadians who have died uh, giving the ultimate sacrifice. And it's a way for us to remember what they did and recognize that it was through their efforts, through their sacrifice, that we are able to enjoy our freedoms of today. Other than wearing a poppy, how can people show their respects? There's a couple of ways. As you said, the most visual way at the moment is for individuals to get a poppy. Uh, There's also not only just the lapel poppy, but we also have a digital version as well available on mypoppy.ca. So people can affix that to an email signature. They can share it on social media. So again, it spreads the poppy around. Another way that people can commemorate and remember is to attend a Remembrance Day ceremony. And on the website legion.ca, there's a Remembrance Ceremony locator. So people can simply put in the name of their community and find out what ceremonies are happening at what location. That is a great way for individuals to, again, show that they remember. Then a way for you to pay respects to those who have fallen is to simply at 11 o'clock pause for two minutes. Where are some of the gathering places this year for people to pay their respects? And what are some of the protocols set in place for COVID? Where you would gather, a lot of it is dependent upon the individual municipality. So, for example, in Ottawa here, we do, the Legion does uh, organize and conduct the national ceremony. But there are other ceremonies throughout the city and throughout communities right across the country. My recommendation would be to reach out to the local Legion branch to find out details on that ceremony. Now... Again, we are observing whatever health protocols are required by the the local uh, health and government authorities. So in Ontario, for example, people are are able to gather, but we do ask that you maintain a six-foot physical distance and masks are still required. So we will take our guidance from the health officials, but we do want people to have an opportunity to come to their local ceremony, again, to pay their respects, but we have to be mindful of the restrictions we have to operate within. 2021 marks the 100-year anniversary of Remembrance Day Poppy in Canada. What does the poppy represent? The poppy is that symbol of remembrance. And as you said, it is the 100th anniversary. It was back in 1921 that Madame Anna Guerin from France came to Canada, presented her idea to the Great War Veterans Association, which is the predecessor of the Royal Canadian Legion, and it was adopted. Her goal at that time was to honour and to raise money for fallen soldiers and to collect donations for children in the war-torn areas of France. So Canada, again, was the first country that adopted that Poppy Day scheme. And since then, we have been making poppies available to Canadians uh, ever since, so for the last 100 years. 
it is that visible expression of remembrance. Who and what is the National Silver Cross Mother? The National Silver Cross Mother for this year was just announced today. Her name is uh, Mr. Jose Simard from Quebec. The Memorial Cross is a medal that no one would want to receive. It is given out to family members of a fallen soldier. And Madame Simard's daughter, Corporal Karin Blay, was killed in Afghanistan in 2009. So she has been selected by the Royal Canadian Legion to represent all mothers, all fathers who have lost a child in the service of Canada. So she will come to the national ceremony and she will place a wreath at the ceremony as a member of the Vice Regal Party. And there may be other activities throughout the year as well that are commemorative in nature that uh, Madame Samard will attend to represent all those grieving families who have lost a son or daughter. What are some of the things that you teach youth when it comes to Remembrance Day? We teach youth how important it is to remember. We reflect back to John McRae's poem in Flanders Fields, and it talks about how there is a hope from soldiers that we will not break faith, that we will pass the torch. And that's the important thing. We have to talk about remembrance. We have to talk about what soldiers had done for us so that youth have an understanding that people have died so that we can enjoy what we are enjoying today as a society. So it's making sure that we never forget those deeds of the fallen and paying the proper respects to them. That was Stephen Clark, National Executive Director, Legion in Ottawa. When we think of Remembrance Day, we think of the men who sacrificed for our country. But what about the women at those times? Although they weren't on the battlefield as often as men, they still played significant roles in World War I and World War II, more than what most people realize. I speak with Catherine McPherson, a professor on history, women, the Canadian West, and women's history at York University, for more insight. And here are some notable Canadian women that you can think of during those times. Well, there were very powerful women who were put in, in charge of recruiting for the female armed services. There were very, very accomplished women, for example, who became the head of the Canadian Army Corps nurses units. So lots of women who had significant administrative and educational attributes were pulled into the military and civilian activities. I think you'd mentioned that you'd done a little bit of research on Elsie McGill, who, uh, as you know, was a young woman, came out of high school in the early 1920s, decided she wanted to go to um, to university. Her mother herself had been educated and was an early feminist. Elsie McGill went to, to UBC and then moved to the University of Toronto where she pursued electrical engineering. Now, these were decades in which many faculties at universities had only begrudgingly permitted women to, to uh, enroll, and certainly engineering was, and, and until quite recently uh, continued to be, uh, one of those faculties where there were very few, if any, women. So McGill was an early leader in terms of women in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. She uh, moved into mechanical engineering. She got work in the uh, auto industry, designing cars, and then also studied aeronautics and um, eventually got a master's degree in aeronautical engineering. So she was a leader in women in, women in science. And uh, during the Second World War, 
she parlayed her design and her aeronautical expertise into helping develop the Hawker Hurricane, which was a fighter plane that was used in the Second World War, was used in the Battle of Britain. If you look her up online, you'll see that there was, she was called the Queen of the Hurricanes, Elsie McGill. So there's, I mean, cartoons um, made about her. And um, she went on to be a leader in Canadian aeronautical engineering design, as well as an as a, uh, important voice for feminism and women's rights in Canada. So in that way, then, the, the war did provide opportunities for individual women to kind of fast track into areas that women had traditionally not had much presence in. Are there any misconceptions of wartime women that people tend to overlook? Well, um, the... Women who worked in the armed services, for example, were technically not at the front, and yet many of them found themselves in dangerous circumstances. There's a story uh, this week in one of the news services about women who worked as code breakers during the Second World War, sort of the Canadian Bletchley Circle. And there's some stories about being uh, very close to uh, being under attack when in, in those circumstances. So there's a new research about the range of kinds of activities that women undertook during the war. I think one of the big misconceptions is that, you know, women didn't work until the war. And that's a misconception that uh, is important to dispel. Women didn't work in, in munitions and in, in many factories before the war, as they did during the war. But they did certainly work for wages. And do you have any final anecdotals you'd like to share? Well, certainly, I think the other piece of this is that the Depression of the 1930s was, was dire. And many young people found it very hard to get a foot in the door. One of my aunts, for example, worked for six months in the 1930s. She worked for six months for no wages so that she could get experience to get a job working in an office. So in that sense, then, the war profoundly altered the economy and also brought the federal government into managing the economy in a new way. And that would really change uh, the lives of Canadians profoundly because during and after the war, all sorts of new welfare state programs such as pensions were introduced, um, the what was called family allowance or mother's allowance. So a sense that there should be a welfare state safety net uh, so that Canadians wouldn't again experience what they experienced in the 1930s. That was certainly agreed upon during the war and put into place during the war and was one of the legacies of World War II that, that I think is important for Canadians to remember since we're very proud of our welfare state, and it doesn't always work perfectly as we experienced during COVID. Uh, and we need to clearly do some work in terms of long-term care. And some people in those long-term care centers are people who lived through the war. Uh, and uh, so, but certainly a robust and well-run welfare state is something that really became part of the Canadian identity during and after the Second World War. That was Catherine McPherson, professor on history, women, the Canadian West, and women's history at York University. You're listening to At Humber on 96.9 Radio Humber. The news that employees have been patiently waiting for is finally official. Hourly rate of minimum wage is going up. Starting this January 1st, retail workers and servers will have more money in their pockets. At Humber's Melly Gumish has more on the story. Hard work is paying off. Last week, Ontario announced that the minimum wage is increasing to $15 an hour. This comes after the hike was cancelled in 2018, and instead, we got a $0.10 increase in October. Ontario's Minister of Labour, Training and Skills Development, Monty McNaughton, says 
that the increase will help thousands of employees around the province. I was proud to stand with、uh, Premier Ford to announce that we're going to、uh, increase the minimum wage、uh, to fifteen dollars、uh, an hour. This is going to benefit、uh, about seven hundred and fifty thousand workers、uh, across the province. These are our frontline、uh, heroes that have been working in grocery stores and、um, uh, restaurants and other uh, service sector uh, employees. So we're going to uh, be with them uh, uh, to help them get more bigger paychecks. However, there are a lot of people questioning the timing of this increase. Many businesses in the province, severely affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, have been struggling for over a year, and now the employers will have to pay their workers more. Minister McNaughton says Ontario wants to be there for the employees as cost of living is going up every day. The cost of living、uh, is going up. Inflation、uh, we're seeing over the last number of months is is skyrocketing. So we want to be there for those 750,000 workers that are making a minimum wage.、Uh, increasing the general minimum wage to $15 an hour means、uh, about $1,400 extra in workers'、uh, pockets. But that's not the only thing that is changing. The province is also increasing the hourly rate for liquor servers, supporting them to earn a living wage. We're also、uh, going to eliminate the liquor server minimum wage. Um, so they're going to go from twelve dollars and fifty-five cents to fifteen dollars an hour. That results in a pay increase of、uh, over five thousand dollars per year.、Uh, again, these are workers that have been on the front lines.、Um, they deserve to be paid more, and、uh, Premier Ford and our government is is delivering for them. Meanwhile, the opposition says this increase is not enough for the employees, and fifteen dollars doesn't meet the cost of today's living. NDP leader Andrea Harvest says the cost of everything increased since the cancellation three years ago, so the workers need minimum wage to be at least seventeen dollars an hour. Melly Gumish, Radio Humber News. And on the topic of money, it's Career Month at Humber. With the event returning this year, the pandemic has changed it to allow for flexibility. As a result, Career Services seeks to reach an audience with the students who may not know of the month's existence. Here's at Humber's Julian Arwin with Christina Alcina, Associate Director of Career Services, on the yearly event. What is the overall goal of Career Month? It's a great question. So our overall goal is to really support students、um, and our audiences, including recent alum,、uh, with developing competencies and、uh, encouraging them to stay connected with us、uh, while we continue to offer virtual programming this month. Uh, with respect to adapting and navigating in the job market、uh, in a virtual and hybrid environment, so you might have known our theme,、uh, which is thriving through change.、Um, and Career Month contains a number of interactive workshops aimed to really prepare students and recent alum for the world of work. What is the most difficult part of Career Month? Yeah, I think it's just getting the word out because I know all these pieces are really great for students, but I also recognize it's a busy time as well. So trying to find the balance of offering a lot of great programming, but recognizing the timing and supporting students with understanding some of the value in these activities,、um, but also recognizing for some maybe this isn't the right.、Um, Week, for example, but that's why we'll have five weeks of programming to ensure that we can support students throughout the month. Who are the most common students to be participating in this month? We have programming for everyone, so whether you're in your first semester and just 
wanting to sort of think about some of these conversations as you head into your program, or we have a lot of great programming for graduating students and even recent alum to sort of connect you to industry and to really sort of kickstart um, the next few months as you begin to sort of develop your LinkedIn more professionally or going on interviews. So we do see a variety of students enter our programming. And then, as I mentioned, we do have some identity specific programming. Yesterday, for example, we hosted an event with Onyx on bridging the gap between Black students in corporate Canada. And again, on the 24th, we do have our panel focusing on equity deserving groups. So we do try to create programming for a variety of students recognizing that everyone has different needs um, and to ensure we have specific programming. Um, as I mentioned, our campus partners do include Indigenous education engagement, so they're hosting a number of workshops and we also are working, as I mentioned, with Ignite on a number of programming. How do you guys think you can improve Career Month? So one of the re- ways in which we also always improve is we do provide evaluation and feedback links at the end of every event. And that's actually how folks can um, obtain prizes by filling out the surveys. And we get a lot of interesting data uh, with respect to improving and just really seeing what works and what doesn't work. Maybe it's a timing piece, maybe it's the content, the subject matters, the guests we're bringing in. It's really wide in terms of how um, we see ourselves improving from the lens of students. I think one of the ways in which we continuously improve is just understanding the pulse of students. Last year, for example, it was a big push to sort of help students understand how to navigate COVID um, and the pandemic environment with respect to careers. And now um, we gleaned one of the biggest concerns students might have would be navigating this job market in a hybrid environment uh, when, when many pieces are returning. So Um, I think to answer your specific question in terms of improving, I think just understanding where students are at and being open to adapting to their needs as well. How do you guys accommodate those with uh, learning disabilities? Yeah, we're happy to accommodate. So all of our events are registration-based and where they're not, um, you can contact us to sort of learn more. Um, All of our events provide an opportunity for you to contact us ahead of time um, because we're demonstrating the schedule and the timing. And uh, we try to offer events at different times, depending on classes, as well as other family um, responsibilities and um, personal responsibilities. Um, And with respect to, you had mentioned learning disabilities, as well as other accommodations, we'd be happy to accommodate uh, where we're able. Um, And I would encourage students who have questions um, to definitely contact us um, and we can connect you with the organizers of the event, whether it be our team or one of our campus partners to explore how to make um, the most out of the event and how to be successful attending. What is your hope for the future of Career Month? My biggest thing is we are planning to do more events in person next term um, as we shift to this model. And I would hope to see students out at those events and also would love to gain some feedback in terms of what will work and what won't um, in a hybrid setting. Um, And I just can't wait to see what we can do to offer Career Month in person in March and to support some of these pieces still virtually if needed with respect to your point on accessibility. Um, And yeah, I'm just really excited to see how this month goes, but there's still lots of programming available uh, for students to still attend. That was Christina Alsina, the Associate Director in Advising for Career Services. And the winner is... I had only ever thought of the actual award in the abstract 
I didn't think I would win, and now I'm in this strange position where I have, and I'm trying my best to um, figure out a lot of things. That's author Omar Elakad, the winner of this year's Scotiabank Giller Prize. The novelist, who is a part of Faculty of Media and Creative Arts, was rewarded $100,000 for What Strange Paradise at a gala in Toronto Monday night. At Humber spoke to Elakad after he made the shortlist earlier this month. We revisit some of the interview with reporter Julian Arwin. What does this mean to you? What does being on the nomination list mean to you personally? I'm a fairly insecure person at the best of times. I don't have much of an ability to assess my own writing. I can't tell you if anything I've written is good or not. I don't have that capacity when it comes to my own writing. And so as much as I'd like to pretend that external validation is not is not at all important to me, um, it very much is. And it's a means of of justifying the very esoteric thing that I've chosen to do with my life. I try my best not to let awards or lack thereof define my sense of self-worth, but they do allow me to to at least think of the work I'm doing as, as having, um, having reached a particular kind of audience. It's a means of looking at something and saying, here's proof that what I'm doing has, has some impact. Um, that shouldn't be the case, but it, I, honestly, it kind of is. Did you ever think you would get to this point? I didn't think I'd ever publish a novel. The first novel I wrote, I had no agent, no publisher, no book deal, no expectation it would ever see the light of day. In fact, the first four novels I wrote, because before American War, which is my first book, I wrote three novels in my spare time when I was working at the Globe and Mail, and they never left my hard drive. I finished them. I didn't think they were very good, and so I just left them there, and that's where they'll stay. So I didn't think that I would ever be a published author, uh, let alone be in a position to to, uh, be nominated for something as prestigious as a Giller. Um, I've gotten very, very lucky for reasons I can't quite discern. Um, But no, I certainly didn't think I would ever be in this position. So from what I understand, you also teach at Humber. What writing tips do you hope to impart on your students? I think the two central pieces of writing advice are central writing advice, are central pieces of writing advice for a reason, uh, which is that you should read everything you can get your hands on. You should write as much as possible. Um, That's always been the bedrock of a literary education, as far as I'm concerned. On top of that, I'll add that it's important to be kind to yourself. You know, Thomas Mann once said that a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Writing is is exceptionally difficult, particularly for people who write. And so the more you beat yourself up about it, the more likely it is that you'll just sort of harass yourself out of the profession in the first place. And so I try my best to tell my students that they should be kind to themselves. And just keep in mind, again, that the good writing lives underneath layer after layer of bad writing, and that you have to dig through the bad writing to get the good stuff. That's Geller Prize winner Omar Elakad speaking with Ad Humber's Julian Arwin. And that's it for Ad Humber for October 10th. Today's contributors to Ad Humber were Michaela Verbruggen, Mele Gimesh, and Julian Arwin. Our technical producer is Noah Skanga. I'm Hannah Clark. At Humber is produced by students of the Journalism and Radio Broadcasting Programs on 96.9 Radio Humber.